0: We're continuing our study in the Gospels. We have been for several weeks now studying the Sermon on the Mount. What is often called the Sermon on the Mount, although as we've seen, a better title for it, as some modern translations have it, is the Great Instruction. But this is the specific instruction given by Jesus to his initiates as to how to make themselves receptive to that which he wished to give them. The conditions that were to be met in order to be able to receive. So today, we'll do one section relatively briefly and then get into another one which may take us more than one week. We are on chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 33. Again, ye have heard that it's been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. This is a... I think this is a very interesting section. The A lot of scholars think the text is garbled here, that there is some confusion when it was originally translated from the Aramaic that Jesus spoke into the Greek. Whether that's true or not, it still has a lot of Application. Now we have seen that this instruction in many ways is an adaptation of the law of Moses, um, bringing it out of the level of a social code into the level of an esoteric code or a a means of, of growth on the part of individuals. And this many things in this sermon do refer specifically back two passages in the Law of Moses, some of them in the Ten Commandments, some of them in other parts. This, of course, is connected to the commandment about not taking the name of the Lord in vain. But it goes far beyond that. It isn't really talking about swearing in our modern sense, although that's a part of it. It is referring to, again, uh, that sense of ourselves in relation to the universe that we saw was the principal meaning of the very first verse of this sermon, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we swear by something, we invoke the name of something over which we have no control. When we say, by God, or even, as Jesus says here, by heaven or even by earth, or even by ridiculous things like our head, the fact is that we can't make one hair white or black We have no control over these things, and when we invoke them in common speech, and how much more when we invoke the name of the Lord in common speech, we enforce in ourselves the illusion that we do, and this makes our work of growth harder. And therefore, um, he says, uh, you better stick to yes or no. There is more than this even, too, in it. That is a large part of it. There's also the question of truthfulness. We know that the Masters define truthfulness of speech, not only in outright lying, but also of implying that we know, or are in control of, more than we are. It covers a lot of ground. I recall a friend of mine told me once that when he was in India in the late 1960s, uh, there was a new camera, uh, someone wanted to take a picture of the Master, with and there was a camera there that nobody knew how to work and this fellow who was a pretty clever guy said uh, to the master I can work it and he took the camera and everyone lined up and the master lined up and minutes went by and he couldn't figure out how to work it so he gave up and before he admitted that he couldn't work it the master came up to him and took the camera away and said if you can't do it don't say it and there is something of that implied here we can't do it, so we shouldn't say it. In chapter 12 of the same gospel, Jesus says very clearly, that I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Every idle word. That's a, one of the hard sayings, but the masters have confirmed that this is the true teaching. And the thing is, again, that we don't appreciate the effect Of everything that we even say, let alone do. Even thought, according to the Masters, comes into this category. Every thought, every word, every deed has a reaction. We are in the habit of not taking that seriously. So we multiply words upon words and uh, we cannot help but be untruthful because we are not fully aware of everything that we say. This business of swearing is the most obvious example of that. In his famous talk in Basis Hall in Hollywood in 1963, Master Kripal Singh spoke on this subject. Silence is golden. Speak as little as possible. And then he repeated it with great emphasis. Silence is golden. Speak as little as possible. When you speak, speak in the most kind and gentle manner. Don't lose your temper over anything. Always keep your tongue under control. This is one thing. The wound given by a sword will be healed in a month or so, but the wound given by the tongue is not healed. All through life, whenever you remember again, it becomes fresh. But generally, I have found that this is a hard thing to grasp, but it's it's an important thing and a true thing, that it is in the not so much in the deliberately evil things that we do, but in the in the ways in which we indulge ourselves, the self-justifying, self-indulgent things that we say or do, thinking that it doesn't matter. These are the things that can multiply and add up and carry in the long run great weight. And we don't mean any harm when we swear by these things that we can't control. We don't mean any harm when we glibly volunteer to do something which we cannot, in fact, do. We, we're perfectly innocent as far as intent goes. But the fact remains that it's very wise. To close now, the next section is a very important and famous section, and I think that whenever people speak of the Sermon on the Mount, they are referring primarily to this section, and we probably will not be able to deal adequately with it I don't know that we can deal adequately with it in a year, but we probably, almost certainly can't deal adequately with it today. So it may continue on to another time. We have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. That means go with him two miles, by the way. Sometimes people don't realize that. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. We have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now they go back to the beginning. Again there is the connection with the Mosaic Law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Famous section which is repeated, I think, three times in three different places in the Old Testament. Uh, and it's important to realize that this is not a vindictive um, provision. This is a provision on the social level which was meant to prevent people from getting more than that. The idea was that what uh you should restrict yourself in revenge if someone took away your eye, you should not ask for more than their eye, their eye in return. You should not demand their life, for example, and it was in that spirit that it was included in the Mosaic law. It is, it is considered generally to be a very progressive um, section of that law, and one that was probably all that was practical on a social level. But on a spiritual level, this is definitely the law of the negative power. This is the working of the law of karma, in a nutshell. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is exactly what we have to pay to the negative power. And if we demand our rights on that, if we do not forego the provisions of this, we are ourselves setting ourselves up to be treated in the same way when our turn comes. Uh, a great, This particular concept has been explored a great deal in literature, and uh, sometimes very profoundly. Shakespeare wrote a couple of plays on this theme, and there are and numerous other examples of it too. Therefore, what is required, what Jesus is saying here, and he's giving a number of specific examples which would have been familiar to the people of the time in a very direct way, is giving these examples to demand from us instant forgiveness. In other words, that we act at the time when we are up against it, so to speak, when we are being wrongly used. And there is no indication that we are not being wrongly used. There is no sense that um, it's a good thing to get slapped on the cheek. You see, and in the Middle East, then as now, this was the supreme insult. If someone was slapped with their open hand, someone was slapped by someone else with their open hand on his cheek, this was considered the supreme insult, far more derogatory than being hit with a closed fist, for example. And to be able to forgive him instantly, and offer him your other cheek in token of that, was a great deal to ask, a very great deal to ask. The uh, business about the coat and the cloak, and this is a really interesting thing because, of course, these verses are often applied in a political context in the modern world, which they don't really um, this is Professor Hugh Sconfield, a very remarkable modern scholar, not all of whose opinions I agree with, but whose scholarship is very sound. He says, the policy of no reprisals was a difficult one to advocate since the people were largely at the mercy of the legionaries, that is, the Roman soldiers, who were also the occupying power, by the way. They were foreign occupying power. Um, very much resented by the common people of Palestine, many of them mercenaries who hated the Jews. The sufferings of the poor Jewish peasant were particularly severe. At any moment, impost collectors, tax collectors, might break into his hovel to impound his few possessions, brutally striking him if he resisted. If he had nothing else worth taking, they would even strip him of his tunic, that is to say, his cloak, As he passed along the road with his donkey, he might meet meet a company of soldiers who would compel him to carry their baggage for miles in the opposite direction to which he was going. The very word for this forced service was Hebraized from the Greek, so that the angaria, or impressment, was spoken of with sullen hatred. Requests for money with no intention to repay was another affliction to be endured, so that it is hardly surprising that there should be resistance. Yet it is noteworthy that Jewish tradition attributes the destruction of Jerusalem to initial acts of retaliation such as Jesus would fain have prevented. Reprisals would only aggravate the people's unhappy condition. I would point out that this does appear to be the genuine historical context of these verses. It's certainly not the only context in which they have validity, but it's a far cry, indeed, from using concepts like draft resistance and justifying them by this particular section of the Bible. Actually, what is being advocated is precisely the opposite. If you are drafted Go, that is precisely what the meaning of the verses is. And I think that we should realize that. And if we have objections to the draft on other grounds, that's another thing. But they don't, they're not justified here. Um, it works just as the destruction of jerusalem was brought about because the jewish people did not pay attention to this particular teaching and jesus may not have been the only one advocating it uh because they insisted on having their own getting their own back we might say and they demanded to get what was rightfully theirs and it was rightfully theirs because they had been very badly misused they succeeded in bringing down their whole country around their heads and uh That is also true on an individual level, spiritually speaking. We have a right to demand what is ours, and if we demand it, we will get it. We can certainly have it. But we should remember that if we do that, then who are we imitating? See, we are certainly not imitating the masters. We are not imitating Christ, who allowed himself to be put on the cross when he didn't deserve to die. We are not imitating Guru Arjan who was tortured to death um, for no reason except that he was a holy man. We are not imitating Guru Teg Bahadur, who refused to prostitute himself to suit the emperor and who was beheaded by him. And we're not imitating any other master that I know of. We are imitating Khao because that's Khao's law. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we can have that. That's our option. It's definitely there for us to have. But when we do it, we set ourselves up for the same provisions when they apply to us and they will apply to us. And that is why Jesus specifically puts it on this ground. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? So that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For... He maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. People are punished by karma. That comes through Kao. But the basic setup of the universe, that which is provided from above, that is the same for everybody. And ultimately the opportunity is the same for everybody too. And no one can tell how grace works. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? Publicans, of course, some of the people sitting there were publicans. We have seen that the publicans were the tax collectors who worked for the Roman state. They were hated because they were considered traitors. They worked for the, op- the occupying power. And every patriotic Jew hated them. And for excellent reason, if the same situation were repeated in modern America, modern Americans would hate them too. And yet Jesus uses them over and over again as examples, sometimes to shame them, sometimes to show them that what we consider as inferior is not necessarily inferior. Do not even the publicans the same? They do, just like you do. Everybody loves people who love them back. See, there is no there is no virtue in that. That's just common sense. If you salute your brethren only, members of your family, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Master Kripal has pointed out that even the animals are very loving toward members of their own family and they also uh, respond very kindly, usually, when people uh, treat them with love. So in what way are we superior if our love and our concern is confined to them? No, the you people, and this is again, this ties back to the verse in the first part of the chapter that we read a few weeks ago. Ye are the salt of the earth, you people who have been given Nam are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. You are meant to be good people, people who are initiated, who are given the secrets of the beyond, as Jesus said earlier, referring in the parable of the sower, speaking to the people we saw, that he very specifically said unto you is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. The following three or four minutes of the talk is missing due to the tape jamming. We continue the talk in the middle of the discussion on the principles of nonviolence and a reading from one of Baba Saman Singh's letters on the subject. A lot of times if we feel afraid, for example, if someone is being attacked weaker than us, and we are in a position to do something about it, we may say, well, no, I believe in nonviolence, and we don't help that person out. This is not a good thing. As Gandhi said, um, I believe in peace, but it's the peace of the soul that I believe in, not the peace of the grave. We, are, we, are, we must not um, confuse nonviolence with cowardice. And after pointing this out, he goes on to explain the higher inner teaching of the thing. All saints, including Lord Jesus, give us the word, the practice of which would lift man up from Pinda to Anda and higher regions, thereby generating in him the strength to conquer the evil in him and attain salvation, which is the object of human life. When the key, the word, is missing, the doctrine of non-resistance of evil remains a dead letter. It has been said in previous letters that our viewpoint on life changes rapidly with every little travel on the spiritual journey within ourselves. The senses are detached from the objects. The mind no longer runs through senses. The attention is held by the word within. The evils, lust, anger, etc. run out from within, finding the place too hot for them, not secretly but declaring openly that in the presence of the word they cannot remain within. When the evils have been conquered and turned out, their place is taken by the positive qualities. Then strife and struggle give place to peace and tranquility. And the higher the rise is within, the greater is the harmony with the word and his creation. Then the doctrine of non-resistance to evil, for putting it positively and at a much higher level, as the doctrine of charity, mercy and love, is seen as the handmaid of the word and comes into action automatically. And when it becomes dynamic and dominating, the doctrine of non-resistance of evil acquires a new meaning. The evil is seen as a mere weakness which is easily tolerated in the hope that, properly handled, it can be overcome. The parents' love with their gentle but firm handling of their children gives them good breeding. The teachers' love and handling makes them good citizens. The church does its bit. But the saints' love and handling makes them saints. Parents, teachers, and church work in very narrow spheres and have their limitations. They teach toleration and do good work, but do not eradicate evil, and without its eradication, the strength to love your enemies and them that hate you and use you spitefully does not develop. The whole beauty, therefore, lies in the Word and its practice. Because the saints are rare, and the Word cannot be had except from a living saint, and the practice of the Word is no joke, And without the grasp of the word, there is no awakening of the soul, no victory over the mind and senses, no development of the positive qualities, and no banishment of evil. The man, no matter how intellectual, remains an animal. He imitates saints without the strength of saints, glibly talks of their doctrine but cannot live up to it, with the result that there is a clash in the doctrine and the fact of daily life and warfare. With all that, And the truth of that is obvious. Um, The masters do really require, on a very immediate level, daily level, this practice of non-resistance, I would say, or turning the other cheek. And I will tell you a story um, which will indicate a case in my life when I was brought face to face with this in a way which I never had experienced before this goes back, I don't think, I have told this story much in satsang. In the year 1967, winter of 1967, at that time the ashram and the sangha were very small, and there were not many people here. We were holding satsang in the big house, and there were not more than 10 or 12 people attending. And there might have been three or four living at the ashram, aside from Judith and me. In that year, a neighbor who is no longer living here, has been gone for a very long time, um, decided he owned a piece of land which was completely surrounded by our land, ashram land, which at that time was personally owned by Judith and me, although it is not now. Um, he, he had, a, I think, a ten-acre piece that was bounded on four sides, or at least three sides, by the ashram land. And he decided that he had a legal right to a right of way that went right down, well, went right down the path that now goes right outside the door here, down across the pond um, by master's house and up. Which in those days, of course, neither the hall nor the master's house was there, but it still was right the middle of the ashram. It was the thoroughfare that led through, you might say, the where the action was, and uh, it was quite disruptive. Well, he let us know this by suddenly he and friends of his began going through on snowmobiles without any warning. And this was in '67 was the first year that snowmobiles became popular. In 1966, I had seen my first one, in fact. Um, And then in '67, all of a sudden, they were everywhere. And I didn't know what to make of it. This man had been very respectful of us in the past, and now all of a sudden, here he was, and he didn't say anything. And finally, I managed to stop him. One day, 25 snowmobiles came through just before satsang started in the afternoon. And those days, satsang was at one. I was just getting ready to begin the meeting, and I heard this incredible noise. And I ran out the front door, and there they come, an army of them. And he was at the head. And I stopped, and I said, what on earth is going on? He said, well, I'm just using my right-of-way. I so said, what right-of-way? So the right away I got to my, to my land up there, and he was very breezy and he was very nice. You know, he didn't, wasn't angry at me for, for preventing him from going, and the people he had with him were members of the uh, Lakes Region Snowmobile Club, which he was persuading to buy that piece of land in order to use it as a headquarters for their snowmobiles. So, I was upset, and. Uh, I told him that I thought he was mistaken. (laughs) I'm afraid I was a little bit hot. And he said that he wasn't. He was very cheerful. He did not get mad back. He was very good. And he said uh, that I should check it out with the lawyers and I would see. Well, I did check it out with the lawyers and I looked out. I did a great deal. I became obsessed with it, as you can imagine. And I did a lot of examining and I came to the conclusion that he was totally in the wrong, that there was, in fact, excellent reason to believe that the right-of-way that went with that piece, which there was one, was an entirely different uh, section, and that he himself had admitted that sometime in the past. So, that the deed was ambivalent. There was no specific thing on our deed that demanded, required the right-of-way to be in a particular place. And um, the lawyer suggested that I file suit against him to remove cloud from title. This is a legal term which means that it was, would not be anything punitive on him but would simply be uh, clear the thing legally so that, that uh, we would not have to worry about this. I talked to a lot of people about it. I talked to my father. I talked to friends of mine whom I respected. And everyone said, yes, you should do this. You must do this. This is very bad. Because you see, the other thing was that he was willing to sell the land. Also, I mean, it was either a question of he wanted to sell it to somebody, he was very happy to sell it to us. The price was about three or four times what it was worth at that time. The irony of it is that it was a bargain by today's prices, only because I didn't know what the future was going to hold in that way. And I was righteously indignant because it seemed like an extortion thing to me, like a mafia ploy. And I was became very, I tend to get very self-righteous with these things. Well, everyone said to go ahead and do it, and the lawyer said to go ahead and do it, and I thought, this is the thing to do. I'm going to show him. So I went ahead and filed a suit. And the day after he got the notification of it in the mail, I'm telling you, it was like hell broke loose. And up to that time, he had been very He had come through, usually only when we were not having meetings or anything. From that point on, it was any time of the day or night. It was open warfare. And uh, I never knew when he was going to come. And we might be doing anything. Once, a uh, bunch of them came through right during the meditation before satsang. Uh, another time, they would come at night when I was away. I was working nights in those days as a type operator in Concord. And I didn't get back until after midnight, which meant that I was not here in the evening, and he often came through in the evening, but never on the weekends when I was here. And yet, on those weekends, it got so, I was so obsessed with this, and so determined to fix things, to make things right, to teach him, to show him, to get him where he deserved to be gotten, that I was out walking with a lantern, night after night, waiting for him to come. I, I had to see him. I couldn't bear the thought that I might be in the house when he came. I had to be out there. And he never came. At no time when I was walking did he come. And I used to think, I was very conscious, by the way, during this period of the Master's absence, I would, think, I would think, Master, where are you? Why aren't you with me? I need you now more than ever. Where are you? And you know he wasn't there. And it was very clear to me that he wasn't there. And yet it never, never occurred to me why. Although Judith was very good and tried to help me a lot, I was really mad. I was a madman. And it went on and on like that. And, and it got worse and worse. I would sit for bhajan and I would hear snowmobile sounds. <laughs> And I, couldn't, I didn't know what was going on. I, thought I I really thought I was cracking up. And he's continued to come. Everything was... They, they could come at any time. And no matter how much... I mean, I couldn't be out there every minute. And often it so happened that they came through and I just couldn't get out fast enough to stop them. <laughs> so I, I finally gave up. And I wrote a letter to Master. And I told him all about it. And I presented it. You—you you would, If I still had my letter, which I don't, You'd be amazed how, how what a good guy I was in the in the the terms of that letter. I mean, I told him exactly everything, you know, from my point of view, and how badly and how he was, you know, this was undoubtedly he was getting back at the ashram for some reason. He didn't like us being here, and I explained everything. And uh, I went uh, after mailing the letter. um, Judith's aunt had offered her her house in Florida, had offered us her house in Florida for a few weeks and we we took advantage of it and went down until, you see, until the snow melted because (laughs) I couldn't stand the thought of being here one more day with snow on the ground. In any case, uh, I got a job down there. It was not difficult in those days with linotype machines still in existence. And um, I got a job the day I arrived and, and we had a nice time in six weeks. Well, toward the end of the stay, I got my letter from Master in response to my letter. And reading it over now, uh, I was kind of surprised that it was milder than it struck me. It hit me with a ton of bricks. Absolute ton of bricks. The first part of it, um, I've often quoted, It was published in The Impact of a Saint and other places, too. And, of course, I wrote out of extreme anxiety. I need not tell you. I mean, sleep was something that I really didn't have much of. Worry and hurry are the chief causes to dwell on by the mind. If you could just eliminate these two by resigning to the divine will and pleasure of the gracious Master Power working overhead, you will be relieved of the undue strain and stress. Please note it for certain, that whatever comes to your count is in your best spiritual interest. now I've often quoted that to people, very seldom in context. Remember that what was coming to my count at this time was, from my point of view, the worst thing that had ever happened to me. Please note it for certain that whatever comes to your count is in your best spiritual interests. And becoming a fit receptacle for the divine grace, you have to inculcate a sense of self-abnegation and effacement without involving your mind. The more you are relaxed, reposing, and receptive, more of ineffable bliss and harmony will fall to your lot. Just rise so high in the loving lap of the Master Power to consider yourself as a child who would relish thy will, not mine, be done. Your deep gratitude for manifold blessings is good and appreciated. I can't remember what I could have written that he was answering to with that, except that there was... There was always, I've never since I've been initiated, would I be able to say that there was ever a total absence of grace. But I certainly was, it was, uh, I don't know, I can't remember now. Anyway, then he comments on the vacation in Florida, which he says, you may do so as casual recess from the humdrum of routine life, sometimes brings in good results. (laughs) But you should devote maximum time for meditation and keep yourself cheerfully busy in doing something useful. Mind must not be left vacant and its faculties be harnessed and utilized for spiritual progress. As regards the Sant Bani Ashram land dispute, it could have been better if you would have, could have discussed it in all loving politeness with the party concerned. It would still be advisable to seek cooperation of Mr. Orvalis Smith, that was the neighbor, through some common friend which may straighten the affairs with the grace of the master. Such like impediments do obstruct some time and cause disturbance. However, patience, humility, and loving kindness pays in the long run. You should play your part in as noble a manner as you possibly can do and leave the rest to the master power. Well, that letter hit me like, I can't tell you how it hit me. It hit me like an atomic bomb, like a hydrogen bomb. It hit me. It was such a devastating effect. I, it didn't make me sad. I read it through, and the relief. Florida had been very good. There weren't any snowmobiles down there. <laughs> and it was, it was uh, pleasant from that point of view. And it had been helpful. And I'd been going to satsang, and, and it was good for me to you know just be attending satsang. And there were a lot of Satsanis down there, and we became close friends with many of them, and it was nice. But when I got that letter, the underlying tension that had been there just went away, and I knew what I had to do. I knew, I saw very clearly that I had been wrong, and that I had brought the whole thing unto myself, and that I had been turning my face away from the master, and that was why I had been conscious of his loss. So I went back home. First of all, I wrote a neighbor here, also a satsangi, who did know Mr. Smith and who could serve in that function very well and told her what Master had said and asked her to try to arrange a meeting between us as soon as I got home. And I came home, and I called up the lawyer and told him to uh, call off the suit. And in a day or two, the neighbor turned up, and he came in. And uh, actually, it was some time. He was away when we got back, and there was some time elapsed. But when he finally did come back, he came in, and he sat down, and I said, and I meant it, I said that I apologized. I apologized for the trouble I had caused him by bringing the lawsuit. And he looked at me and with absolute sincerity said that he apologized for the trouble he had done to me that had caused me to bring the lawsuit in the first place. And I said that I, I had withdrawn the suit and that I, he could use the right-of-way as often as he wanted. And he said, well, I don't want to use it anymore. And I said, all right, that's fine, that's good, but feel free to use it if you want to. And he said, no, I'm not going to use it. I promise you that, and we shook hands and he left. You know, you know, and it, it came true. He moved away in a few months, and I haven't seen him since. And he never, for even when he was here, he never caused us a bit of trouble. Now, I told a lot of people knew about that problem with the snowmobiles, and I told them about it. People would ask me how'd it come out, and when I told them what had happened about the master's letter, my withdrawing the suit, people were so astounded. You can't imagine a neighbor, another neighbor who was very much sympathetic with us. I told her about it at Beetle's store one night. Her jaw just dropped, you know, down to her waist, and she was like, she backed up. She couldn't believe that something like that could really happen in real life. Yeah, it's right there. It's right there in the Gospel of Matthew that everyone believes in, and yet when when you finally do it, nobody thinks, "What is this? He meant it?" You know, it's the kind of thing that works. So. In my experience, this is the true teaching of the masters, and it's it's of the utmost (laughs) importance. I could have saved myself a great deal of suffering. You know, why I suffered so much over that particular thing, I don't know. There was some deep identification of me with the land, which it was like they were running through me. And that was, you know, a flaw um, that was in me to begin with. I also felt that the master was being taken advantage of, which he obviously did not share. That was not a feeling that he had. It was only a feeling that I had. And in any case, the fact is that the, the teaching about turning the other cheek is a real one. You know, it need not, it does not apply or need not apply to, to, to the conduct of countries and large political entities or people responsible for the lives and happiness of other people It applies to people who are interested in spiritual growth, who have committed themselves to spiritual growth, and who supposedly take the words of the Master seriously. To those people it applies. And uh, I think it's an important thing. It was a very hard lesson for me and a very valuable one. I have never forgotten it, and I hope to God I never do forget it. That is my prayer. And uh, it's an important thing.